Should we begin by introducing ourselves? Yeah, because we never do it. We never do it. <laughs> I'm Declan. I'm Matt. I'm Joe. Welcome to another Floodcast. Uh, a bit of a Doomcast. Well, no. I think we're going to start off by addressing what I think is on everyone's minds, which is the IPCC report. Which is that the vaccine gives you autism? Yeah. <laughs> That's the, that is this entire Floodcast? The vaccine gives you big juicy tits. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's correct, <laughs> yes. lining up to get it. Um, <laughs> we're all sitting here right now. All of us have big juicy tits. On my way in here, Declan, I noticed there's a car on your street that has a bumper sticker that says, get the clot cast. Yes. With, yeah, with the, a grim the reaper. Shot. The clot shot. Yeah. Clot cast. And it really <laughs> did remind me that like, oh yeah, I've got to sign up to get my vaccine. Yeah. So thank you to that guy. Have you ever scanned the QR code to see what it I don't to? want to scan any of these QR codes in case they just like brick my phone and yeah. send all my money. Fair enough. Fair to enough. To Russia. Well, this is quite a sticker. Like, I maybe I'll take a picture on the way out, and we can use it as the um, the show image. It's like a Grim Reaper image. It's really huge. It's like almost an A4 sticker on the back of this van with a Grim Reaper that says "Got your clot shot." They're all over the place at Burley as well. These like, and they're all different. And like all of these like weird conspiracy theory right wing stickers, they have like better graphic design than you'd really kind of hope for. Was was it the White Rose ones? Because I saw those at Noosa a few months There's ago. There's been heaps oh. of them. Um, just down on Stanley Street, actually, yeah. I noticed the other day. I'm pretty sure that old mate with the clutch shot sticker in, on his van walks that way to go to work or something because okay. there was just, like, such a regular kind of, like, even spacing that it seems unlikely that, it, that they're not connected. Mm. Um, but, yeah, so, uh, yes, the vaccine does contain Jeffrey Epstein's DNA. It uh, does have <laughs> a bunch of microchips. Um, it will We're give all... you big, juicy tits. And, and we will... are all connected to 5G in yeah. our minds now. But also we've got some other things to talk about as well. Yeah, so... As I kind of mentioned at uh, the start, I guess the IPCC report came out this week and uh, everyone's kind of uh, doing their best to cope with that or not. Um, so we thought we'd talk a little bit about the report itself, but not too much because I would, I would imagine most of our listeners have either read it or know what it's about. It says more or less what you'd expect without reading it, which is that we haven't really done anything. We're now sitting at about 1.2 degrees of warming, which is more or less what like they were all predicting we'd be sitting at by now anyway mm-hmm. um you know when when they were releasing their reports like a decade ago it was saying in about a decade it'll probably be about one degree of warming and we were like nah that's a that's in a decade though <laughs> um yeah and then it talks a little bit about like how it's like how climate change will actually affect things and it's like well yes it's going to get hotter <laughs> it's going to get drier um it's going to have more intense rainfall less common storms but they'll be a bit more intense um and then it had like some other stuff re like like sea level rise and stuff like that but it was mostly just like keeping a track of like just it's just saying like where the where the state of the science is at right that's what i sort of felt i was like nothing here is surprising it's incredibly depressing but it's not surprising i will say i felt like the response to this one felt like a bit more of an event like mm. you know the ipc keeps releasing these and there's always a level of like oh yeah it turns out that what you thought was true is in fact true and that um their predictions continue to be correct and that we're not really doing anything. Um, but it, it did feel to me like this one got a little bit more attention and felt a little bit more like an event and like a, like not a turning point, but I feel like it was received a bit differently. I think it was a bigger media event than the other yeah. ones have been. Well, it came out like pretty much the night after the Olympics finished. Everyone was like, oh, 
shit, well, I've got nothing to distract me. <laughs> and now this is coming out. Um, I think also it might have been to some extent that a lot the other ones were kind of saying this is what we expect climate change yeah, to be, exactly. whereas this one is starting to track... What's it's starting happening. to track what's actually happening. Like it's it's got like a like a sections where it's kind of like talking about like what's actually observed. Yeah. Um, yeah. And yeah. I think also part of it could just be that Europe like the European summer is happening right now and so that they've like over the last what couple of months seen quite a few climate induced kind of like crises mm-hmm. and so it's probably a little bit more fresh on people's minds in people's minds. I can't believe how many people died in Germany in the floods. It was like a hundred and something. Really? Yeah. God. Yeah, I just saw a very horrible photo from those wildfires in Turkey um, of, I don't know what it was exactly, but it looked like a sort of centre or processing hub for people who just, you know, been driven out of their homes by the fires. So you've got like this room or box kind of crammed with people with these fires just raging in the background. And I was like, I think someone posted on Twitter and was like, this is what the future looks like. And I was like, yeah, no, it's true. (laughs) Yeah, there was quite a bleak one of... um someone like like an elderly lady but with her even more elderly mother like and the like the caption was trying to explain that this elderly lady was trying to explain to her mother who's got alzheimer's and really can't remember anything that their home is gone now like Mm -hmm. this is fucking traumatic yeah i mean we still i I feel like everyone's sort of forgotten about the bushfires now because covid's been taking up all of our mental energy but like you know that wasn't even that long ago well we yeah like we had our climate event here um like, I, th- I do think the bushfires were important in a sense that, like, that was the first thing you could really point to in Australia and say, okay, this is, like, you can see, like, the sky's literally a different colour and there's smoke in the air and there's all of this shit. Um, there's a point now where these climate events are, like, getting to a really tangible stage. And in some extent, like, there's kind of this double thing where on the one hand it's like, okay, this is now happening, like... Um, they had the, the massive heat wave in um, the States in, like, the Northwest where it got to, like, it was actually, like, 40 degrees in Canada, right? In, like, mm-hmm. parts of Canada where it's not, shouldn't be, like, an Australian summer temperature. Where these floods in Germany and then, like, the fires in Greece and Turkey and then, like, the fires in Siberia where there's there's nobody in Siberia, so you don't see them on the news, but they're bigger than all the other fires put together. Um, and there's another massive fire season in California. Like, it seems like, like, on the one hand, there's a real tipping point where you can clearly see it in your immediate environment in a way that's really hard to ignore. On the other hand, what we're discovering is how easy it is to ignore it, mm-hmm. even when you can see it in your immediate environment. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I mean, just thinking back to our own experience with this with the bushfires, it was like for about, I don't know, a, f- a week maybe everyone was like oh fuck shit shit climate change is happening and then there was a pivot being like actually it's the greens fault and we don't have to worry about anything it's just that they didn't do the back burning because they you know they they hate back burning for some reason so i mean yeah it's kind of interesting we were talking a bit off air about the pivot that we've sort of half seen with the ipcc which i think has been less successful um like certainly the response I've seen has been mostly just people freaking out and being like, oh my God, climate change is a reality. But then we kind of, we were talking about the right wing response to blame it on China, which is kind of a predictable pivot, but certainly, you know, interesting. I've seen a, lo- I've seen a lot less of like, you know, that kind of like technical denial that you'd, you'd see where they're like, oh no, no, no climate change is real i just like don't really be- i just don't really believe it climate like it's cyclical and like it's yeah. the all been changing but i believe it but like it's just i haven't 
seen that much coming from like even from from genuinely the right wing press like mm. i think there's still a little bit of like they're probably exaggerating it they're probably doomsdaying it a little bit but it seemed way less willing to to just like say de- like just actually say denialist like talking points mm. yeah like we're in a seem to be in a phase now where you wouldn't just say like it doesn't exist but I think we've also really seen that there will not be a turning point where people are finally like wake up or whatever. That's just not a real thing. Like if that was going to happen, it would have happened by now. We're maybe seeing them like a gradual increase in awareness. I think we are seeing like some shifts in how people think about it and like maybe some more popular awareness as it kind of slowly permeates, but there's not going to be a point where like what we're really seeing is just like, the, a test of the human capacity of a denial, which it turns out is much more extensive than personally I realised. Um, like, we're really seeing how far people are willing to go and able to go in just constructing reasons why this just isn't happening. I don't know whether it's people, though, so much as politicians. Like, I think most of us, us being, you know, people, normal, just citizens, are pretty in actually not in denial about it and actually in like quite a bit of distress but there it also does seem to be like a sense of resignation like I don't know in Australia at least I didn't feel like anyone expected Scott Morrison or Anthony Albanese to do or say anything that was going to be very you know impactful like Elbow's tweet was I've looked it up here it says today's IPCC report confirms what we already know we cannot wait to tackle climate change the cost of inaction is already mounting it's the everyday people who will pay the price. Labor has a plan to act now. Scott Morrison always acts too little too late. And that will mean more bushfires, more floods, more damage to our country. But he doesn't say what this plan is. And as I mentioned before we started recording, Labor doesn't have 2030 emission targets. Yeah, yeah, they got rid of them in um, in their new like manifesto in 2020. They're just like, oh, let's just push them right out. Like their their targets are net zero by 2050, which is not going to be enough. So in that sense, like actually the coalition has more of a plan than they do. Like it's just it, it's it's oh I don't know. I, I yeah, something it's it's incredibly frustrating. But like genuinely, and I earnestly believe this to be true, an inadequate plan is better than no plan. Yeah, I 100% agree. Yeah, I would rather they have some kind of you know fucked emission targets for 2030 than nothing at all. Oh, it's so frustrating because they're like they've got their targets and stuff. Like this is this is like the, the liberal government, mm. but they don't have a plan to meet them. No, like, yeah, that's also true. They've, they've just got targets. Put in targets, yeah. But that's... like, it's so well that like crappy targets with no plan to meet them is genuinely better than the ALP. That's an interesting little turn, actually. That I yeah, which is when you said that I kind of thought, yeah, over the past ten years maybe there's been a real shift in in climate discourse. To, towards targets like we will put these targets up on a pedestal are we going to meet these targets is, is there any plan to meet these targets who knows but they're there so that's comforting yeah it seems like we always miss the targets right like wasn't yeah. that the whole Kyoto agreement as all these countries set targets and then just didn't meet the targets I'm like well we set the targets like um it seems like just another strategy like it seems like a lot more effort goes into looking like you're doing something than into actually doing anything yeah absolutely I mean I so my PhD is kind of focusing on the UN Sustainable Development Goals, um, which is another set of ambitious targets that no one has ever put any effort into meeting. And there's like, so the the Australian government has done one voluntary review of the SDGs in 2018, 
where basically it's like a 70 page report and they just go through each SDG and say like, oh, look, aren't we great? Like, these are the policies we already have in place. So we almost like don't even need to worry about this. It's fine. Like we're already doing such a great job on it. Um, so it's just like it, it becomes a vehicle for self-congratulation. Like, oh, I'm going to set a target right now that this podcast is going to have one million listeners by the end of the year. Um, <laughs> no, this, gonna... this particular episode is yeah, going to have a million episodes. specific episode. Um, I'm going to be Charpo. Um, but like I can set all the targets I want. That's not like, you know, we, we might well say that's part of a, a process, but like, but it's I'm, like, yeah, it's a first step in a process. Yeah. right? Yeah, like, but what if the target was like, we're not going to open any more uh, coal or gas mines. That would be a good target to have, say in the next year or now. What if we just like that to me is so much more impactful. But anyway, it seems like labor, especially like even more than the coalition labor's philosophy of government is very deeply to just like completely distance um like narrative from action like they really do seem to think that like uh the construction of a media narrative is the own like is a complete substitute for like politics in its entirety and like really resist any attempts to like connect anything they do to any actual like anything on the ground yeah like and you see that with the queensland labor a lot where they like they love to emphasize in like like in flyers and stuff now how much money they're putting into renewables but it's it's really hard to like connect that to anything that i've seen in my life like like they they mm. could like they've put you know all this money like 40 million dollars which is fuck all in terms of a gov- like government budget but they've put all this money into renewables but in terms of like what anyone would actually see in their day-to-day life there's there'd be no absolutely no evidence of that whatsoever yeah 100% yeah yeah and they love to talk about like i don't know max should be on this show cuz he knows so much more about it than than i do but like clean co I mean, that, as far as I can tell, Clean Co is basically just an exercise in spin. Like, it's not doing anything to reduce emissions. And, like, more importantly, it's it's all meaningless unless we actually address, like, where emissions are coming from well, in the Well, that's beginning. it. Yeah, like, we can't be putting... It's interesting, actually. I feel like the, the labour policy on climate is basically trying to have it both ways. Like, we've put, you know, all of this, this money into renewables, but we've also opened 18 new coal mines. <laughs> like, okay, well, you know, guess which one has more impact? <laughs> Oh, I read something just like this morning in the lead up that was talking about how much money goes in subsidies to coal and gas in Australia. And it's $10 billion a year. Whoa. So like $20,000 a minute. That's insane. So I mean, in the yeah. time that you listen to this podcast, like coal and gas subsidies, like from public tax will go to the tune of like a very well paid person's annual salary. Yeah. So yeah, one of the things I was thinking about this morning before the podcast was, was and we were talking a little bit before we started recording was um gas mining <laughs> which is kind of seems like it's the new frontier like uh coal is you know finite as we know um and i'm sure we'll you know keep mining it until there's absolutely nothing left to to dig out of the ground but uh yeah g- gas seems to be the new coal and uh i think both part major parties voted to give public money to open up the beetaloo basin which will reduce which will um contribute four times more emissions than Adani. Like, and no one's talking about this, really. I think, depending on if you listen to, like, the, like, kind of the Beetaloo investors and how much carbon they say is in it versus if you look at, like, the kind of, like, climate NGOs, mm. it either doubles completely Australia's carbon output or only adds, like, an extra third to it or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's enough. This whole phenomenon of, like, gas extraction 
has really it seems to almost come out of nowhere over the last like decade or so and it kicked off as a huge thing in america which like part of it just seems like people are desperate for something to invest in they're desperate to find like more spaces where like a small investment gives a huge reward like it briefly like i know i have like a friend's cousin or something who worked in uh, wyoming in the gas fields and their job was to like run a shell company that could do all of the like the dodgy illegal stuff that like sets rivers on fire and like gives everyone cancer and like makes it so that when you turn on your tap just like tar and methane comes out um their job is to just like run a shell company that like took all the liability for the big companies but that like industry's collapsing now in the states just as they're like trying to really open it up over here it's like and we had here we had the whole phenomenon phenomenon of the gas led recovery mm. where they were immediately like let's tie this to covid and then had that like um like covid council thing which was just like 90 percent gas ceos I all about that that's so true in a way that's incredibly like it's incredibly transparent if you're paying attention so if you're actually like watching what they were doing like because they did they they assembled this like um board of like okay these are the people like the COVID recovery council or whatever and they were just like just stacked it with people from this arbitrary unrelated industry and started really trying to sell us on this idea of a gas-led recovery and it's kind of slipped away away a little bit now in part because they don't really need to make it a public facing thing i increasingly think like the you know they're all committing to opening up the beetaloo basin and there's a bunch of other um places around australia where they're trying to do it um it's not like a jobs program so it's like opening up gas it's fundamentally not that labor intensive and doesn't create that many jobs no it doesn't create jobs and you know due to these incredibly favorable tax structures that they've set up they the companies pay almost no tax so then the question becomes like so what do we gain like what do we as a country or society gain from this industry or what do we what would we lose from shutting it down like almost nothing so you know, it then becomes a question of why are both parties so like incredibly, um, you know, backing this to the hilt. Um, yeah, I think the, the extent to which the whole Australian polity is just like completely captured by the mining industry is yeah, like that's pretty much the answer. Like, <laughs> it's it's genuinely like mind-boggling. Like, yeah. I th- I think it's genuinely hard to kind of comprehend to what extent mining just runs runs Australia, yeah. and that like that there's a few other industries that have a little bit of say, but really like like because obviously like. People talk about the neoliberal, neoliberal revolution as being like finance capital taking control, but finance capital within Australia is just like out. They just w- want to continue to fund mining and mm-hmm. mining exploration, mining leases, and stuff like that. And mm-hmm. really, the rest of it's kind of neither here nor there for them. Mm. Yeah, it's a really kind of stark, single-minded um, example of like it almost. I guess it almost makes you feel like a dumb hippie when you talk about it because it really is just the like very clearly the case that yes it's the profit motive at the expense of everything else in the world including like nature and human life um and like it's all it is like it's one of those things that almost sounds like a conspiracy theory when you talk about it because it's like i think people do have a bit of a natural instinct to be like oh no well obviously it can't just be as simple as a handful of evil rich people running the show and sometimes it is and in the case of like something like gas i think i think as well like especially like the coalition governments become increasingly transparent and they're like 
blatant corruption around some of this stuff and increasingly aware that they're just going to be able to get away with it. Yeah, we're Labour are at least quite, like, embarrassed about it. Like, if you point out, like, just the sheer number of, like, small gas companies that donate to Queensland Labour, for example, to a Labour volunteer, they tend to act surprised and feel a little <laughs> bit ashamed of themselves. I mean, they often, yeah, they often do, but there's, like... I actually wouldn't say that... I would say that Labour Party is as bad as the coalition in terms of this sort of just naked shilling for the gas industry. Like Craig Emerson, um, who was in the... He was a minister in both the Rudd and Gillard governments, is just now a lobbyist for Santos, like, openly. Yeah. Um, and he's the person who wrote the, like... the the report that they really, really mm. lean on to be like, oh, well, actually, the Shorten campaign was far too, like, ambitious and left-wing That's and what we really need to do is pull back and, like, be a little bit more conservative. Yeah. Which... I like, can't get over how deeply entrenched and everyone like just believes this to be true. Yes. Like like no one thought that at the time. I can't remember anyone being like, I just think I just think Labour's really offering a little bit like too much ambitious structural change at the moment. Yeah, like it it's good I did want to talk about this. It's genuinely amazing, like not so much that like, you know, the Labour right say the thing that benefits the Labour right, but how little resistance they've met and how effortless it's been for them, like, to get everyone in this kind of, like, pro- even in, like, the progressive media space, just be like, yeah, that's correct, that happens. And I think that ties into, it almost relates to, like, what we were saying about the bushfires, that, like, it's almost, we don't remember that hap- that happening, is, like, it really, it seems like the, it shows you just, like, how we don't remember these things. Because, like, we all worked on the 2019 election and we all knocked on doors and I didn't knock on a single door with someone saying, like, oh, yeah, Bill Shorten's, like, too left-wing. <laughs> Mostly because, did, like, I didn't... You know, people's attitude towards Bill Shorten is exactly what it is to Albanese now, which is, who the fuck is that? Yeah, I don't really care. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean... Well, yes, exactly. But I think we didn't realise that till afterwards. I think perhaps that's you know there's certainly a disconnect between how you know because the media was really fawning over shorten like towards the end and then um fucking uh hawk hawk died and everyone was like oh my god it's this is like kevin 07 all over again it's like this fated moment where he's gonna um come you know come from behind and become the prime minister but there wasn't any like like even despite all that fawning none of that fawning was like oh i like i can't believe someone so ambitious and so like no no like no. it was it was more just like, like this oh. nerd is going to be prime minister <laughs> <laughs> chloe shorten's husband to become prime yeah. minister and then, like, there was like so much emphasis like from from the alp in their campaign about like how sensible and like yeah like economically like conservative and stuff they were actually going to be absolutely and, and then as it turned out no one gave a shit about any of that stuff um and yeah it was mostly the attitude was like who is this man i you know he seems weird and I don't like him. But I'll vote for this other man, slightly less weird. Yeah, but now, like, the conventional wisdom is that, like, Bill Shorten was the Jeremy Corbyn of Australia. Yeah, it's it's really quite Because, like, I don't know, the ALP do seem to have a pretty remarkable capacity to just enforce a particular party line. Like, within the party itself, it seems like it's enforced to a degree that everyone just, like, believes it completely. Mm -hmm. And then if you're, like... And that kind of seeps through the left. I mean, if you're, like, outside the the ALP and have like a very much an antagonistic relationship with them because they are enemies then you're like what what like but I don't think it's that many people like I think mm-hmm. within within say like other like generally left leaning institutions like the academy or the media or something people do just kind of follow the ALP line quite a lot and that yeah. that pushes it like really seriously to the to the rest of the base as yeah. well yeah I think the one 
I, I think as we've discussed before, maybe on the podcast, um, I think they're like the modern ALP cannot campaign or win an election to save their lives. Like they're really bad at doing politics on the ground. But one thing I think they're they're actually better than certainly better than the Greens at is kind of capturing a narrative and driving it forward. And like I think there's a tendency in the Greens. Um, to be to kind of put way too much faith in like rational debate and be like oh well if we just say the truth then people will realize and that's not at all what happens you know I think even I'm thinking too much about being online again but just thinking about like the narrative that gets pushed online about yeah that Shorten was too ambitious or that the Greens voting down the CPRS was like really the worst thing that happened that you know that's what's got us into this mess like they have incredible message discipline about that stuff and even though it's absolutely untrue and has you know no basis in the real world just saying it enough times it hooks into people's minds and we are not that good at that I think it's it's funny that they do all that stuff and then go online and complain about the Murdoch press. Yeah, that's... <laughs> doing the exact same shit. Well, like, that is part of the situation now is that um, these centre-left parties around the world, which, like, everyone has been pretty quick to announce, like, the, the death of all these, like, old social democ- democratic parties. But one thing it turns out they still really retain the power to do is just exactly that, is to get a particular line and just like absolutely relentlessly shill it throughout um there's like i'm almost quite limited but this you know the the actual demographic of these parties which is like um educated like middle class people who work in the 45 media. to 65 years old mm. yeah it turns out they still have a huge amount of power to just like determine truth yeah well you see that sometimes when you when you door knock someone around in that age gap and, and social class and economic bracket and then they say something like oh yeah the greens you know but you guys voted down this and you're just like oh no they've got to you <laughs> yeah yeah it's really it's really difficult like you know you speak to people who you know by all means like would actually have lost out from the fucking like the what's the the share thing that they were gonna do for fucking corporate tax write-off stuff franking franking credits franking credits. Yes. franking credits there you go like the amount of people who like would actually have benefit from from that like mechanism being like well that was the mechanism that cost them the election and like i spoke to one person who was already a consistent liberal voter who brought it up mm-hmm. i to this day don't know what that is no right. one is allowed to tell me i refuse to ever find out but it was like that's another thing which was just like it it's kind of amazing how just after the election, these things which are really like just re- really quite trivial and really just like almost holy, like they they feel it just like memes. It's like the labor equivalent of like uh, the Russian spies in the States or anti-Semitism in the mm. UK and their ability to like invent this, what seems like a completely just trivial, like almost like laughably flimsy excuse for why they lost um, and then to just like give it this enormous reach and power um, is, you know, like what they do with like the CPRS here mm. is pretty remarkable. Well, yeah, I mean, it's, I think we've, we might have talked about this before, but it is really hard to admit that you lost because you did something wrong. And so any explanation that lets your party off the hook is obviously going to be, you know, enthusiastically adopted. Um but, you know, in the long term, I would argue that you're really only you're just kicking the can down the road. Yeah. But we've kind of got off the old... The well, I, yeah. I do think this relates to climate change because I do think that what's determining the whole, like, state of the game, like, 
like I, I don't think it really relates first just just this thing of like um like memory and being able to mm. like it seems like a constant uphill struggle to just get people to connect like events that have happened in the past to events that are currently happening and i think as well the fires the real significance of the bushfires was that nothing changed afterwards yeah. and that like i don't think the like the polling didn't change at all uh morrison continued to have a positive approval rating even though he was like famously in hawaii for most of it i think he went down a little bit but yeah it didn't really matter like exactly yeah it was at the start of the like the election cycle anyway like mm-hmm. it t- often tends to dip at that time and there was like there was not a moment there where it was like oh like this is a wake-up call we discovered that, that there's just not going to be a wake-up call basically no. yeah and like a part of that is that like that the Labour Party won't use, like, its ability to kind of set the, like, set kind of, like, what the centre-left kind of, like, framing is to, like, talk about climate change in any serious way because, like, firstly, just, like, institutionally they're captured and Joe was talking about, like, looking on all the, like, the Wikipedia life after politics sections (laughs) of Labour Party politicians, which is great. Um, But, like, more importantly, like, like, if you look at kind of the, the, like, the, the institutional powers that kind of, like, make up the Labour Party would be, like, unions slash super, superannuation. I think you can almost kind of put them as, like, a similar kind of thing. And then, like, other kind of, like, institutional like institutional actors, like, like the media and stuff like that, which really, I think, like, are the base of a Labour Party, which all, like... like well, superannuation invests in, like, in, in coal and gas to a huge extent. And no pressures from like like Unisuper has been the like the recent one. Like they've just completely refused to like bend to the, the members' will and, mm. and like do anything about that. And there's been a lot of like a lot of the their their defense of this, like Australian Super's CEO or whatever was saying, Oh well this is actually really important because it means us to have a say and like do like, you know, corporate shareholder activism. Yeah, within, change from within. <laughs> change from within. Oh my god. Um but but it also just isn't borne out by scrutiny in terms of like they consistently vote to like prevent like you know, like some people who own who own shares in like BHP or whatever like raise things being like oh we need you to like commit to a plan to like stop exporting coal in X years or whatever and Australian Super is will just vote against that in Australia every mm-hmm. single time mm-hmm. like almost as though yeah it's just the profit motive like there's n- there's not much else to well, it I think it is and I th- so like looking at um even like just like the climate media which is probably like developed over the last like couple of decades really of like a lot of like genuinely well-meaning like climate wonks and technocrats seem like really unwilling to acknowledge the role of like capital accumulation in this and like like oh no no what we just need is like like what you were saying before make a really good argument to the market so that the market understands that if it like but it will face like financial consequences if it continues to invest in fossil fuel and they're just like refuse to kind of acknowledge the the really central role that that fossil capital plays in in like extracting wealth and like moving wealth around the world. Yeah, like I think there has been a real pivot to like the 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 Albanese strategy of it well it almost creates confusion because they almost end up saying stuff that's similar to what the Greens say, but like you know Albanese is up there just saying like the time is now, we need to act. It's important that we do something um and like then just being very strategically vague about like what exactly that thing is yeah it's like the tweet says labor has a plan to act now but you you demonstrably do not yeah 
And then just like, but just saying it, just like he's not going to link to the plan. Like, uh, you know, if you go on like Labor's website and just try and look at their policies, you can't find them half the time. Um, but like, it's in some ways more insidious. I always think of this as like the progressive strategy um, that we're seeing adopted around the world is this sense of like, oh, let's almost like mimic what the like this the new new left line and everything will be like. We're at a point now where we can't get away with just like flat denial. So we kind of have to adopt like some of the language in a way that completely disconnects it from any like tangible plan of action. And then a way that is really corrosive, I think really corrosive to actually like having any clarity of thought about these problems. Yeah. Well, I think there's a certain sector of voters, maybe sort of center left center who really only want to hear the comforting words yeah. from an opposition leader and something I noticed after the IPCC report was some people online saying things like you know we just I, I'm so upset by this and it's like so concerning and scary we really need to vote the Morrison government out it's like yeah but do you so I don't know I think I think Labour gets away with a lot just by being in opposition to this but you know as you said Matt in reality they're not in opposition to it yeah and I think it's it's so much of it's so much of like looking at like looking at what team people present themselves on as opposed to looking at like the structures that are actually causing climate change. And it's like it's it's like friend of the show, Mark, looking up whether Labor's shadow environment minister had like mentioned CO two emissions. Mm. And no, she hadn't. Like she or, or if she had, she'd never like associated them with um This is our friend Terry Butler. Um yeah, just never associated with polar gas. Yeah. Like well, she went to. There's a photo circulating of her at uh, paying a visit to Woodside, like the the Karatha gas plant in in WA, um, which Albanese and Penny Wong have also been to. Like, there's no. I mean, they're anyone who thinks that they they're not in the pockets of the gas and the coal and gas industry, like. Yeah, know, and that's... it's it's really frustrating because like even though they might use a, like a slightly different framing, I don't think, like looking at like getting rid of the Morrison government as being something that would like move us towards better better action on climate change kind of is really like it's refusing to look at actually what's causing climate change which is Australia like to a, to a meaningful extent Australia exporting fossil capital over the world so it's burnt releases carbon and like facilitates the production of shitty fucking gadgets that when mm. we, we then buy back mm. um, yeah I think well it's kind of what we were talking about before like the I think I think to the extent where Labor is forced to say some sort of climate policy, they get away with a lot by saying, like, we're investing in renewables. But that doesn't mean shit if you're just continuing to dig up and export coal and gas. Like, it, you have to stop that thing. That's the main well, thing. And that was one of the real, like, em- like emphases of the IPCC report was, yeah. like, it's it's about cumul- cumulative emissions. Like, it, it doesn't really matter when they've gone out. Like, it doesn't really matter if the emissions were produced in, like, like by the first, like, by the first coal fout coal-powered like cotton mill Mm. or if it was produced by like like a gas-fired power plant in Queensland now like it it's really meaningless in terms of like to what extent that forces climate drive like like that's a a climate like heat forcing element in the atmosphere Mm -hmm. so stopping now is like stopping new ones is is really the only goal like it's the only important thing it doesn't matter like what the transition plan is if we're going to like really steeply change by at 2050 to get to zero by 2050 yeah if we've produced a lot in that time yeah like i think it does 
like the necessity of just not doing the thing does to some extent present a like a messaging problem like a electoral problem in that um like if you if you are just like you know writing stuff to try and get people to vote for you it's like generally you, you don't really want to be able be like negating it just mm. like it doesn't feel good i don't so think so we're just going to shut down these industries yeah exactly well, i don't think voters really like love it um it is always just you're always just inclined to be like well i don't want to say no like i don't want to have a policy that's just like we're not going to do this like that's it because then the opposition will like it does give the opposition something to work with but like also we have to do it all the world yeah it was like the like, kind of event also you can that, work it out like yeah. it's like the yeah. kind of end tweet that you were talking about before joe mm, yeah this tweet that was like oh look look at me having a big juicy steak for dinner and then there's, so there's a picture of his steak in the frying pan and then the second picture is like the steak with a tiny amount of meat on and, and and he's like the ipcc says we should only be eating 14 grams of meat so like you know geez can't can't believe they would try and take my meat away from me which is very effectively just making it about like the amount of steak you have on your plate and and as we were saying it's kind of like a weird masculinity thing as well yeah, yeah. well it, it does two things really really well actually um like it, it it like ties action on climate change to your like levels of material comfort mm-hmm. um and also it like leverages a certain like weird masculinity which is really associated with eating meat and yeah you know. and there is like a level like that is the right-wing politician's favorite thing to do is just to be like i'm the ultimate manly alpha it's very like I don't know, like, 2005, like, uh, manliness culture, which is, like, cigars and beer and whiskey and tipping your fedora and being a, like, it's very cringe, but, like, I I think there is probably some people who go for it. I also, like, this is, it is also the case, I think, that, like, what they're doing is just implying that caring about climate change makes you gay. Like, I actually do think that's a pretty... And, like, I actually do think that's a pretty significant part of how this is supposed to work, is just being, like, you know, there's a lot of, like, men out there who, like, it's not so much that they love being masculine, it's that they're terrified of not being masculine. Yeah, yeah, because of how masculinity is policed, like, between men and stuff like that. That makes sense. Yeah, Yeah. I think the right wing in Australia has done an incredibly good job at linking any type of environmental concern to like the worst greens people in the world um and being like well you don't want to be you know those latte sipping greenies do you well in that case you know you better just get on board with more more coal and gas and it's like it's like a strongly a view of mine that whenever somebody says latte sipping what they mean is pufta yeah no exactly i mean the, the stereotype really has been incredibly successful um this might be apocryphal, but I was I was taught to make coffee by the old mate who ran the Paladar Fumoir Salon. Ah, um, hero. And he, yeah, lovely guy. King. Um, and Friend he the made the claim that, and it may, look, may not be true, that Australia invented the word latte, um, flat, no, Australia invented flat whites because Australian men thought it was too gay to drink a latte. Um, <laughs> I would the flat that. white did like The flat white did come out of Australia. It's, I mean, true. it's It's like hard to know if it's like... But like also a flat white is made exactly the same way as a latte, just served in a different glass. Yeah, so. yeah. yeah when I learned to make coffee, I learned like, yeah, cappuccino has foam, flat white has like you know, a normal amount of foam and latte has like slightly less foam. <laughs> They're the same coffee. I was living in the US when um, I think it was around 2015 and Starbucks had a big sign outside that said like flat white come in and try it find out what it is and i think i bought one it was the worst fucking coffee i've ever had it was so bad (laughs) this is like probably 
drifting far afield, but like one of my favorite stories about was so when Jeremy Corbyn was wanting for leadership at the UK Labour Party, um, he was running against this guy, this guy called Owen Smith, who was mostly famous for he was caught in a coffee shop drinking a cappuccino and he pretended not to know what a cappuccino was. <laughs> <laughs> so like he's just like someone who's just like having it. Just like having a normal coffee and then someone like comes up to him with a camera. Some journalist is like, oh, oh, you've caught me having my my frothy coffee. Oh, they don't. Gee, this this must have been a mistake that they served me this frothy, frothy coffee that I would never ordinarily have. (laughs) Because he genuinely believed that like working class people don't know what a cappuccino is. Oh, God. So and the whole it is another example of how these just like idiot memes completely in the political sphere, take on a life of their own. And then these like politicians completely believe, like just like the, the symbolic importance of like, just like drinking a latte, a normal drink that like everyone, everyone knows what it is. Like, I don't, I fundamentally don't believe that like working class Australians are like terrified of lattes. Well, same with the Canavan thing, right? Like I don't actually think anyone gives a shit about this, like stakes that much really. Like, yeah. Pro- okay. So what it does is it plays on a fear that probably a lot of us do have, which is that if things are going to change in the climate, in terms of addressing climate change, we'll have to give up some of our material comforts. Like I think that is a very real uh, look, hesitation. Like, and I think to some extent it's like it's true if we don't also reshape how we deal with material comfort. Like we've got this very individualized like mm-hmm. capacity of material comfort and, and material luxury, mm. and like we we probably can't maintain the level of like individual material comfort while dealing with climate change mm-hmm. like we can develop a collect like collective luxury kind of and com- communal luxury stuff that would like leave us all well well better off and deal with it but that's obviously not something that they're going to countenance if you're part of the conservative kind of politics no exactly uh, yeah like to some extent i am like i am sympathetic to some of this from labor's perspective and i don't think all of this is just labor's fault like i think there is a uh, edit that yeah. out Decker's. yeah like this does <laughs> Um, this does like open up a, you know, there's like a, a strategy that like the liberals can use, which is just like, look, you're going to have to give something up and we can always like massively exaggerate that. And we can always just like really simplify this and just be like, look, Labor, Labor hates me. And, and like, because masculinity, like I'm often kind of skeptical about some of these more like, like identity politics, merit narratives that make stuff like, um, you know, gender politics really central to everything that's happening. But I think this is one of those cases where it is quite important and that, like, I, I do think that, like, the policing of masculinity, like, does play a role here and that it does present some electoral difficulty for Labour. But also, like, I think Labour massively uses that an excuse to mm. do, like... All, to do what they want to do To do anyway. what they want to do anyway, because they don't actually want to... They also want to solve the problem at well, all. No, like, no. And you can tell want... this by looking at the state governments, right? Where, yeah. like, where they do actually wield material power, like, like you know, Queensland and, yeah. and Western Australia. Here in, in Queensland, particular. where they don't have this problem, because in fact, like the LNP here is just like completely disintegrating, and like, and the LNP here has adopted like a like a culturally like an alt right like you know Western civilization kind of culturally right wing platform because they also boarded this bought this narrative and they also thought that's what Queenslanders love to do and like it hasn't worked mm. um so yeah you, yeah you can clearly see like from the actions of state governments that like they also just don't want to do it no, well like where they have power they they don't choose to wield it yeah exactly decent 
Yeah. I mean, there's always, I mean, in Queensland, we've talked about this a bit on our like post-selection cast, but the, the spectre of the regions is just held up as like the reason we can never do anything, which again, I think is a, um, is a misrepresentation of what regional voters are like. Like, I mean, yeah, sure. There are a lot of um, people, well, there's people everywhere who are right wing or vote for right wing minor parties or, you know, believe some kooky stuff, but it is... I would say, and having we interviewed some regional Greens campaigners um, around the last state election, like people there care about the same things as everyone cares about, like yeah, everyone being able to live a decent life. Like <laughs> and most people want that. Like, they're not idiots; they understand the IPCC report as well as anyone else does. Like I think you know that it's kind of it's actually just insulting the way that they're just used as this kind of almost scapegoat when you're talking to voters in the inner city. Like, well, you know, we'd really love to do something about climate change, but, you know, people in towns will just won't let us. Yeah, those idiot plebs who yeah, yeah. are to blame for the, everything. The rubes don't understand, and, you know, what can we do? Because if we don't, if if we lose the election, then the LNP's going to get in, and then things will be even worse. Yeah. I think, oh, yeah, just like the other thing I was going to talk a bit about is that the new narrative around blaming China for climate change. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. I was about to, like, kind of segue into that by saying at the risk of sounding like, the wettest like labor person ever <laughs> like murdoch media does play a really important like like global political role in in giving the giving the right like a a pole to orient toward in 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 this and what i've really noticed like because i checked out what was happening on news.com um in relation to it like all the ipc stuff and all of it was just like just like blowing up everyone saying oh yeah well you know what can australia's emissions do we're only 1.3 percent what about china it's 20 20 something percent and like I've noticed this from centre leftists as well Just like Well like I noticed this from like uh, Matt Iglesias Who's just like a You know an American Like the Democrat poster Who was just like Look the problem Like And like a few of these other guys Who I have been like developing an obsession with lately But I won't go into it But like, like They have been working on this narrative Which is just like Well Really like China is the actual thing like the actual source of the problem and that like really we need to build an antagonism towards China which I think Um, is already quite latent and less you know more explicit um I, no, I don't know. I've noticed that when I've been door knocking that that's kind of no, no, no. It's times. um, it's it's escalation of the last like couple of years has been mm. like really, really noticeable. Mm-hmm. But what like because I, I saw the same thing happening in the UK, like the UK right wing press, like Boris Johnson using almost exactly like word for word the same kind of like responses to like questioning about the IPCC re- report to Scott Morrison, and like it the the coordinating factor of this and like in being like oh no no this is this is a developing world problem. Um, and I think, like, what, like, what's what's really frustrating about this is the way it kind of acts like fossil fuels aren't physically moving in space. Yeah. Like, like Australia isn't ex, like, you know, we talk about Australia's emissions as only one point three percent of the world, which is fucking heaps for a country of twenty two million. But, like, the role we play in global capitalism is exporting fossil mm-hmm. fuels around the world. Chinese, like, China is the is the the center of like global. Um, like global emissions because it's the manufacturing center of the world and like American like consumer goods and Australian consumer goods are overwhelmingly produced in China. Like it seems really like there's so much emphasis from the right about like, you know, the wonders of globalization and how like fantastic it is that like capital and labor can move so, so freely over the globe. But then like there's this real strict kind of like turn towards the nation state as this incredibly bound and Mm. like, like this bound kind of like institution that doesn't interact with with places beyond its borders. Do we want to talk a little bit in the last 
10 minutes about how we do politics in the face of this stuff because we were talking a little bit before about or off air about um sort of like the I guess the difficulty in coming to terms with it and well we still what we talked about at the top of the show really like the the sense that like this is no longer something happening in the future but something is happening to us and like yeah for me I, I just felt I, I haven't historically really been affected that much by doom climate stuff but for some reason this report I was like god damn I feel so depressed it's it's I, something about it made me feel really hopeless like I've always believed up until now that like we're you know that we're not going to destroy ourselves as a human race and now I'm like well maybe we are who knows and I still do believe that there's obviously like a point in doing politics and and, and trying to change the world and, and doing what you can and and door knocking and so on but something about it I don't know and I, and I felt like a lot of people around our age felt the same thing that's that's the impression I got anyway no, I, I agree I think there was like the the scale of depression on like on Twitter on the night that like it came out was enough for me to be like oh <laughs> not tonight like <laughs> I'm gonna cook dinner and pack my door <laughs> good idea so yeah like I, I agree like I think there is this level of of hopelessness mm. like being being created and kind of like passing around which is which is really concerning because i think a belief in like in being able to shape the world is really important to like catalyzing action towards doing it like yeah like you're not going to join an organization like with with the intention of like that organization shifting the balance of forces in in the world for the better if you don't really believe that better is possible exactly and then i think well what what resistance is there at the moment? It's like Extinction Rebellion. Jesus yeah. Christ. <laughs> Which, like, to be honest, I'm increasingly becoming, like, fond of. Like, I think, like, everyone was talking about how cringe the fucking, like, pram burning and stuff was. And it was. It was cringe as fuck. But they did it, and I'm glad someone did. Look, I'm glad they're doing something, but I'm not convinced that they're not an op. I'm just going to say that. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's, like... Because I think, to me, the thing with the IPCC report is that what it says is, like, okay, this is a... There's not a date, like, in the future. Like... You're going to be alive to see all of this stuff happen, and you you are alive now seeing all this stuff happen. So it's like okay, 1.5 degrees in 10 years, like which is for me, it's like okay, well I'm supposed to be like planning where I want to be in my life in 10 years, right? So this is like it's now at this point, it's like okay, so climate change is just like intersecting directly with like my like plans for my future mm. in a way that it wasn't before. Like these like lines are colliding, like this world of like the abstract problems and the world of like my actual life and like my actual attempts to be like what a what am I going to build for myself in the next 10 years yeah um, totally I mean I, for me I'm just like well is it fair to even have children now like it I don't really believe that people should not have children for climate change reasons because life is short and you know I don't think you should sacrifice something that would bring you happiness because the world is ending but on another level like morally it seems kind of suspect <laughs> yeah well i, I think we w- want to talk about um a book by jeff mann and joel Rain- wainwright called um climate leviathan at some point but i the the dedications to that both of the authors like put their children and i think there's a like there's something about i think having children which gives you an investment in the future and like like a, a need to have hope which i actually mm. think is actually quite important like i think you could make a really like solid ethical case for having children that's in the face true. of disaster that's also true um, i do think as well like people exaggerate the sense the scale of the disaster in that they talk about the literal end of human civilization as opposed yeah. to just like you know an absolute like 
and that just, just just because there's like a difference between even like you know like like a billion people could die and like that wouldn't be the end of human civilization but to, it would be to pretty some bad extent, like i think i think like some like worst case scenario things which like you know our worst case scenario like there's a lot of these like in in the ipcc report they talk about like these low likelihood high impact kind of things which it's like it's it's kind of meaningless to like like kind of speculate about like how likely some of this stuff is but if like some of these things that could happen could really involve like genuinely like a reduction in the human population to like to the scale of like 100 200 million yeah like it's like and and we're talking over like over a thousand years here like but but like it it, it, that is a live possibility um i don't think it's one or the other either i think there's a level of sort of social disintegration that where society still you know functions to some extent but everything gets a lot worse for the vast majority of people yeah. thinking like a sort of children of men situation yeah and, and and like the other thing like and children of men's a great example is like people talk about like the end of civilization but what they're really talking about is the end of capitalism mm. and the thing is dealing with climate change like realistically means the end of capitalism too and i think that's like those two narratives kind of go with each other and like play off each other in helpful ways yeah like i read something the other day actually about uh, the gulf stream which is this like big ocean current system in the atlantic and how there's like a real possibility that gulf stream could turn off in like 10 years which would mean like a mass which would be like a massive climate change across the world which would mean like the like all of these fertile areas couldn't grow um it's just like pretty much all weather systems that we're used to would just like shift. yeah basically like, it would mean that like um like the uk has winters like canada well like like the uk's like on the same latitude as like the really cold parts of Canada has a totally different climate because of the Gulf Stream. So it would mean like, yeah, all of these weather systems would totally change. All of these fertile areas would become infertile. It would mean like, you know, millions of climate refugees, which like, and it is also, I guess, like, which could happen like within the next 10 years. I think like the pandemic as well has made it a lot easier to envision these like, um, to accept that, like, yeah, like, we can have these massive world-changing events? Yes and no. Like, we can have them, but, you know, the, I remember at the start of the the COVID pandemic, everyone was like, ooh, what an opportunity to change society. And then it turned out, no, we didn't do that at all. Yeah, like- In fact, we, sub- we, su- we sublimated almost everything to our desire to keep society more or less the same, if not worse. Yeah, and I think, like, like looking at the power of... Like, looking at where power is constituted in society is just, like, so important and doesn't really happen very much. And, like, that's obviously what happened with, with COVID is, like, international capital got exactly what they wanted out of it. Mm. Um, and what you were talking about with, um, like, the lockdowns and, like, what that means to the Australian economy, given it is largely based around exporting fossil fuels to elsewhere in the world, is that it probably can kind of continue more or less as normal through through mm. a lot of, like, disruptions because it's not really predicated on things changing here very much. Mm. I suppose when I actually think about, like, how do we do politics in this, like, uh, you know, post-IPCC world, is that really the the big obstacle and the thing that does create despair is the, is the fact that, like, we know now this is how we respond to these disasters, but is by supplementing everything to the desire to keep everything exactly the same as it always was. And I think, like, that has probably been, like, one of the things I've really discovered over the last few years is just how powerful that status quo bias is and like how much effort how much more effort we're willing to spend on that than it seems almost everything else and that is i think the like immediate like 
thing that affects how you do politics. I think even if we had like, if we had this massive impending disaster, but then we saw that like we had the capacity to be really flexible in response to that, like, and we like we are able to see like oh there are these places where you could, like a small action produces a bigger result or whatever that would be like you'd think differently yeah i think i mean yeah the australian public sometimes strikes me as like particularly uh in love with the status quo i don't know like the u.s is obviously just absolutely going to shit at the moment and will probably be you know i wouldn't be surprised if i lived to see some form of social collapse there over my lifetime but at least there's a sense of things happening and people being like I mean, even like the stuff with the Black Lives Matter rallies um, that happened there last year. I just like stuff like that happening on that the, on the scale on that scale in Australia seems almost unimaginable, and it's probably like a long historical argument as to why that's the case. But it really and even like politically right now, I think we've just got a stronger level of material comfort. Yeah, we do, and we've been able to insulate ourselves from the worst disasters of of the past twenty years or so, like the GFC and now COVID. And we're just kind of vibing, you know, but like, um, although that means that we, we escape like the worst catastrophic effects of most things, we also escape the opportunity to really change anything. Uh, Australia is a vibing country inhabited mostly by second rate people who share its vibe. <laughs> Bit of um, Donald Horn for you. Yeah. <laughs> um, um, yeah. I think, I think there is meaningful cause for optimism, um, I think, like, uh, I'll, I'll put it in the show notes. There's a wonderful article by Liam Bright um, kind of reflecting on the Gramsci, like, pes- what is it? Pessimism of the intellect, optimism of the will. Yeah, and I think, like, to some extent you do need to make a political decision to be willfully optimistic mm-hmm. about possibilities because I think you you need that to catalyse various political activities and to motivate yeah, various political it. activities. And whether you, like, I think you can, you know, sit with your grief and stuff like that, but... I think you do actually need to make a political decision to be optimistic about the possibilities totally. of the future. I mean, what they like, what both major parties who are just in the pocket of the fossil fuel industry would like us to do would be to just give up hope at this point. And like some of those worst case scenarios, like re like the complete like breakdown of the ecologies and stuff like that, will happen over a long time. And we do have like we do have meaning meaningful possibilities to steel ourselves against that. And I do think political change like, when it happens, can happen quite quickly. Mm, um, that's true. That's true. So, like, you know, over a decade or over two decades, I think a lot of a lot of organisations, like, that are, you know, starting to kind of form in their... starting to form their foundations at this moment will be able to exert real strength and real, like, power and shape, like, really shape our society. Um, and it's mostly about, like, how much hope and energy exists within those organizations to do that and that's why it's really important to to like maybe rely a little bit more on the optimism than will rather than the pessimism of the intellect at the moment i also think it's hard to realize until you really look back at stuff how much everything has actually changed over the last like decade or so like because your sense of what's normal like just constantly updates itself to whatever's currently happening it's really hard until you actually make an effort to look back at like 10 years ago and figure out what people are actually thinking back then. Um, you know, like keeping in mind like 10 years ago, like socialism was dead, right? Like you yeah. would. No, I think yeah. like over the last five years we've seen, we've seen like 
both in the UK and the US, the, like, which I think of like as probably the two most important nation states in the history of capitalism. I think that's a relatively reasonable like claim that mm-hmm. might be shifting to China now. But we've seen both of those places like reconstitute a national socialist left, which got defeated in both cases. But but that that struggle isn't over. Like you wouldn't expect them to like reconstitute a national socialist left. That's and not saying we... national socialist too many times. <laughs> oh yeah, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> that means a bad thing. <laughs> but like a socialist left constituted at the national scale, maybe. Okay, yeah. <laughs> <Woof. sure. laughs> yeah, socialism in one country. That's fine. It's yeah. fine to say that. Um, but like, but with an international like kind of like framing, and I think that's that is real cause for optimism. Like you would really mm. see. I think you'd be very naive and I think, like, a bit of a fuckwit, to be honest, to see, like, to, to hope for something like this to constitute itself and then win total, like, hegemonic power in the society within five years. Like, mm. I think that's, like, that's dumb fuck hours, really. Um, yeah. Although, you you know, being part of those movements means signing up to dumb fuck hours because you have to believe in it when you're doing it. Yeah. But I agree that, like, looking back on it, we shouldn't take those defeats as, like... That, well, that's it, you know, that, that failed. Try something else now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, and nor can we really because uh, those movements exist outside of, like, what people on, like, the quote-unquote left think and, and feel about it. Like, they are constituted by a lot of people, like a lot of ordinary, normal people who aren't really involved in politics who that message, like, spoke to them and mobilised them. And, like, that's, you know, what we should be... Well, that's what makes me feel hopeful anyway. Mm. And, like, I think... I think the the possibilities of of communal luxury, like, and and the ways that we would need to do it to like to get through climate change, are like incredibly joyous. Yeah. Like, I think there's 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 real room for joy in that that mm. kind of stuff, and I'm, I'm really like hopeful and optimistic about like my retirement. <laughs> <laughs> more trains. Yeah, more <laughs> Just trains. Put trains, and put trains like, everywhere. <laughs> like a lot more relaxing in under the shade of fig trees. Yeah. You know, like things. Well, you were talking before about like individ- our expectations of individualized comfort and luxury. And it's like, in many ways, those things, the way that they've been set up is not particularly enjoyable for us. Like I own a car and I wish I didn't have to. Like I don't really like driving. It's stressful. I hate looking for a park, hate being stuck in traffic. Like if I could just sell my car and rely solely on bike and public transport, I would love that. That would improve my life. So in some ways, it's not even luxury. It's just kind of what we've been told is luxury or what we've been told is comfort. Yeah, like, it's not actually good for you to eat this big steak every day anyway. No. <laughs> well, this steak is delicious. But steak like, is good, but, like, it's better to have it, really, I would argue. Actually, mm-hmm. it's more enjoyable. Yeah. yeah. So there's a level in which it's, like, a lot of what's being sold to us is this, like, idealized future is not even, like, not achievable, like, not even good anyway. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think, like, any real discussion... Like, any democratic kind of, like, shaping of what's desirable in our society, I think, will kind of inevitably shift us toward a, a like, a political economy that deals with climate change a lot better. Like, we obviously need to make other decisions which are, like, purely towards dealing with, with, with climate change that, like, don't necessarily fit into that. But even, like, were we to completely remove, like, the context of climate change from, from like, everything and just, like, truly democratise, like, social decision-making... I think we would end up having a society that is far less carbon intensive and 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 generous. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah. Well, that's a good note to yeah. <laughs> wrap it up on, maybe. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. Just uh, yeah. Final thoughts. Um, yeah, go out and get your vaccine. Get your um, yeah, we'll 
um, turn you into a Chinese fish person with gigantic tits. Turn um, you, yeah, it'll vivify you in the best possible way. Yeah, so that's how we're actually going to deal with global warming. Um, that's how we're going to deal with... we're going to get, like, yeah. go back to the oceans. Yeah, we're going to return to the oceans. We're all going to all become mermaids. Um, and, stacked yeah. mermaids. <laughs> yeah, we're going to all become stacked mermaids. Um, yeah, President G and uh, Bill Gates have teamed up to give us the, the beautiful gift of a return to the ocean. With Je- Jeffrey Epstein's cum with Jeffrey Epstein's, arms. yes. That is true. <laughs> Jeffrey Epstein died... So that we could all become beautiful, big-titted mermaids. <laughs> he was With, a um, come in our arms and hope in our hearts. Come in our arms and hope in our hearts. <laughs> Should that be the episode? I was going to suggest pessimism of the intellect, optimism of the will as the episode name, but maybe that's a better one. Yeah, no, no, so. it should have come in it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. All right, bye. Bye, bye guys. <laughs>